Romans 3.23. We're going to get to that, Lord willing, at the very end of the sermon, Romans 3.23. I've been examining for the last couple of weeks Peter's instructions to his first century congregation on how to stand firm. And the, the, the image that I've been using is like a tree. A tree stands firm in the, in the face of hurricane-forced winds by a deep taproot of vertical stability as well as a lateral stability, what are called fibrous roots. And I think that's a good picture for this particular text this morning, as we've seen, that uh, Peter wants to come alongside his first century uh, congregation and say, I know it's going to be difficult. The, the culture, the, the government is going to be pushing towards you, wanting to knock you down. And so in order to, to stand firm, you're going to need to have this deep taproot. And then you're going to have to have this fibrous uh, lateral stability. And the deep taproot comes from prayer. You see that in verse 7. And then he talks about this fibrous root system, which is the community that you're supposed to be loving one another. And together, those two things pushed together will hopefully encourage every believer as things come at them in their lives to continue to stand firm. And so Peter now in verse 11 is concluding this section by providing the purpose of standing firm. And you see that. Very clearly, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, in order that. So you see that transition. All these things for you to stand firm are for a particular purpose. And that purpose is that in order that, in everything, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So the terminating point for Peter... The terminating point that Peter wants to have his congregation have is the glory of God. That's the terminating point. That's the purpose. That's the reason why you would be standing firm. As we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the primary purpose? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that's the terminating point for every believer. But my question is, when I get to a verse like this... My question is, well, what does that mean? Peter's calling us to do something. He's calling us to, to, do, to stand still so that God would be glorified. And I can sing about it and I can say something. But my question is, what does it mean to glorify God? What is the glory of God? I mean, if somebody asked me, could I give some definition of what it is and then how I'm supposed to respond and that way. That's the question I'm attempting to answer here, not just this morning, but next Sunday as well. And you might be tempted to think, well, I guess this sermon is not going to be quite as practical as the last two. I mean, the first one was on prayer. That has some practical application, and, and I need to get better at prayer. And, and then there's the, the application of how I love one another and show hospita hospitality to one another. And that was obviously on display here with the college students. But now we're going to talk about the glory of God, and I guess it's not going to be quite as practical. And I would suggest just the opposite, that, that the glory of God is perhaps the most critical Subject in all the Bible to understand. I think the understanding the glory of God is perhaps, and you can 
be the judge for yourselves. Uh, but I think it's perhaps the, the most important thing to understand in the Bible. I'll show you why as we move forward. So I want to divide my answer into talking about the glory of God into four sections. The first two this week. I want to give some definition of glory. And then I want us to walk through several passages of the Bible and see the glory, that the glory of God is, is preeminent. It's the preeminent thing, uh, theme running from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And then next week I want to try to answer this question. Why is it good and not bad that God is so God-centered? And once we see how God-centered is, couldn't we rightfully say, it just sounds like he's an egomaniac. And so why is it that we can say God is God-centered and think that's good, but if you say you're centered, that's bad? So I want to try to answer that question next week. And how, now understanding the glory of God, how should that shape our lives? So let me give you a word just of instruction. As I worked on this week, this is... Uh, this is uh, something that's going to be a challenge to really uh, grasp. And I think at different points when you grasp it, it's going to be a challenge to grapple with. And so this is the, one of those sermons that, you know, sometimes you can just lean back and kind of take a couple notes and say, yeah, that was good. That's not this sermon. This sermon is a, you got to lean forward. you got to hope your coffee's going to be kicking in right now. Uh, this is something you've got to really be mentally engaged in. And, and if it helps you to, to doodle or something, that's fine. But otherwise, I wouldn't try to write down the verses or take notes. I just sort of let this information about the glory of God sort of just wash into you and wash over you and maybe wash something new in and maybe wash something old out. And so I would just try to come at it that way. And then if you want to go back and pick up a verse or a point, the, the, the sermon text is online and the sermon itself is online. So today I think you can just try to absorb, try to let that wash over you. Uh, finally, before I get to this first definition of glory, at some point you might listen to a John Piper sermon and say, Gosh, I guess Piper listened to Paul Phillips and got a lot of this material from Pastor Paul. I wouldn't want you to think that. You should think the opposite. Very helpful, and he's been very helpful in this particular subject. First, the definition of glory, and it can have different meanings. The Hebrew word is kabod, K-A-B-O-D. And it literally means weight. And so the, the glory of God in this, most of these contexts is the, the full weight or the character or the holiness of God. So when you say, what's the glory of God? You're saying all of God, the, the full, visible manifestation of God. That's the glory of God. And so when you have Moses in Exodus 33, remember when he says to God, show me your glory. What, what Moses was asking about is, God, most, most of what I know about you is unseen. And what I'd like to do is see it. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to stand here on this mountain and I'd like to feel the whole weight of God at one moment. Imagine asking that. 
God, can you just show up in all of your weight at one moment? I love how Charles Spurgeon talked about this particular passage in a sermon. He says, when Moses offers this position, he stands alone. A giant amongst giants, a colossus even in the days of mighty men. His request surpasses that of any other man. Show me thy glory. Amongst the lofty peaks and summits of a man's prayers that rise like mountains to the skies, this is the culminating point. It is the loftiest place to which the great ambition of faith could climb. I am astonished that Moses himself should have been bold enough to pray for such a wondrous favor. Surely, after he uttered the desires, his bones must have trembled. His blood must have curdled in his veins. His hair must have stood on end. Did he not wonder at himself? Did he not tremble at his own request? See, when you're, when you're asking to see the glory of God, you're saying the invisible, manifest, the invisible parts of God would be manifest. They would come to light and you would begin to feel the weight of Almighty God. And Moses was saying, I want to feel all your weight. And God's saying, how about just a tiny bit, Moses? And from a distance and from behind, because if I, if I peel back the veil, Moses, you're just going to be smushed against the mountainside. So we don't want that. And so when we think about the glory of God, what we're saying is all the invisible attributes, all the holiness of God showing up. And when it shows up, you say, that's the glory of God. That's the weight. That's the reality of God breaking in in a way that I can see it. And, of course, it breaks in at different points. In the Greek, the word is doxa, D-O-X-A. And you're familiar with this because of the doxology. It means praise. So when you sing the doxology, it goes, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And that word praise is glory. And so when God's glory, when God's weight appears, you actually give glory back to God. You're, when his weight his, appears, when his reality appears, then you praise, you reflect that back, and that's called giving glory to God. And there's a place that you'll be very familiar with in Luke chapter 2 where both of these words are, this word is being used in both of these ways. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. So the angels show up, and around the angels, and now around the shepherds, something comes out. It's called the glory of God, the light of God, the reality of God breaks into this visible spectrum of the, the, the shepherds. And they can say, oh my gosh, I've seen angels and around the angels and now around me is this visible presence of the invisible God. And I call that the glory of God. And then in verse 13, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying... Glory to God in the highest. Do you see that? The glory of God shows up in reality, and the people who are there, angels in this case, are giving glory. They're praising. So the glory of God leads to glory. And even though the, the, the word can have two meanings, I think it has its same terminating point. It's all 
towards God. God's glory is a cause for glory. When you give glory to God, you don't add something to God. Because it's impossible to add something to God. But what you do is you reflect back, you recognize, you confirm, you celebrate, you, you complete the intended cycle. Which I would call, I'm calling the glory cycle. When the glory shows up, glory comes back. Glory gets reflected. It's, it's like a cycle. Anytime God comes in, what needs to be reflected back is the same glory that's coming in. It's reflected back by His creation, especially by us. So the word can have two different meanings, but I think it's pointing in the same direction. So are you with me so far? Okay, so let me, when I thought about this, I thought, okay, let, if I'm losing somebody, let me have an illustration that might, may be helpful, and here are two. If we had a wedding here today, everybody's in place, the moms have been seated, the, the, all the people, all the attendants have, been, have walked out, the doors closed, the, the music changes, and then the doors open, and what happens? Here comes the bride. And everybody's standing, and everybody's looking at the bride. And at that moment, the most beautiful woman in the room is, is the bride. And everybody's focused on her. And especially the groom. He's really focused on her. And, and he can't add something to her, but you can see in his face it reflects back. And what a groom is thinking of right at that point, some I cannot tell you, but I can tell you some. And that is, he's standing here and his bride comes on, everybody's looking at her, everybody's complimenting her, everybody's completing the cycle that's supposed to be, I'm admiring this person at this moment, and the groom is saying, yes, oh, yes. That's what the groom, and I was trying to not, you know, just fall over, but that's what, that's all of his motions. He's just trying to say yes to her. I'm going to say yes out loud to this woman. She's so stunning. She's so radiant. She's the most beautiful person. And that's the glory cycle. She walks in, she's giving off glory. And what happens? Everybody in the room gives it back in some way. They're not actually adding to her beauty. They're reflecting it back by the way they, they stand in honor of her, the way the, the groom's face lights up. It's a reflection back to her at that point. Maybe you're an eighth grade boy and I lost you on my wedding illustration. So let me try one more. Let's take a basketball game. You're a Carolina fan, a State fan, a Duke fan. And somewhere, and you're growing up being a fan, your dad's a fan of that or a friend, and you've now seen enough basketball that you've seen the highlight films of Michael Jordan. He hits the game-winning shot. You've seen the highlight film of Lorenzo Charles hitting the game-winning shot. You've seen the over and over the Christian Leitner turnaround jumper for the game-winning shot. And even if you haven't seen that, you've been in your middle school gym in the pickup game, and somebody hit the game-winning shot. And so at the game-winning shot, what immediately happens to the fan base at that point? What do they do? 
They all go, yes, we won, we hit it, way to go. Now, you don't actually add to the shot. It is a glorious moment when the shot, when the ball goes through the hoop, but you don't add to it. You reflect it. You complete the cycle. You say to this, the, the, everyone around you, yes, and you're high-fiving people you've never seen before. And this, this whole stadium is standing up and saying, yes, that was great. That was unbelievable. That was terrific. I'm admiring it. I'm, I'm completing that in some way. Now, how odd would it be if you're in a stadium with 50,000 people and the, the game-winning shot goes in, and right after it goes in, you go, where did I park? I can't quite remember. What is tofu? I'm not sure what tofu is. I see it in the grocery store, but what is it? What is it? I mean, what if all 50,000 people, the ball goes through the hoop, and you, that's what you say. And all the 50,000 people just talk about you know, I've got a wart on my finger. It's kind of strange. It would be unusual, obviously. Why? Because the cycle wouldn't be completed. Something wonderful would have happened, and nobody's reflecting it back. If the bride comes in and nobody cares, that would be terrible. And so that's the glory cycle. That's, that's what's happening when God and His weight, and when God and His reality show up, they demand a particular response, and that particular response is called glory, praise. I'm reflecting back. I'm, I'm appreciating. I'm admiring. I'm complimenting. I'm completing the glory cycle. When God shows up, you, you say yes. And so my definition is glory is the visible display of God's infinite weight and beauty, which is celebrated by an eternal yes. Number two, seeing the glory of God is the preeminent theme running through the Bible. Maybe said more provocatively in the Westminster Confession question and answer what is the chief end of God answer the chief end of God is to glorify God and for God to enjoy displaying and magnifying his glory forever what is the chief end of God the chief end of God is to glorify God and for God to enjoy and display his magnify display and magnify his glory forever now, this is, you're going to have to lean forward here. And I don't want you to take my word for it, so I've listed out, I could list out a hundred, but I've listed out eight Bible verses that I think point to this answer being correct. And I've listed it in sort of a timeline frame, so we're going to start from before time and get to the end of time, and we'll see it all the way through. Ephesians 1, 4, God's glory before creation. Paul writes this, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So something was happening before our timeline even began. And that was he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Christ to. To what? What's happening before our timeline begins in this Trinitarian discussion? He's already predestining some people to do something. To praise the glory of His grace. That's the purpose 
of creation. Before the foundation of the world, before the timeline began, God planned out redemption in Christ with glory as the ultimate goal. And the apex of that glory would be seen most profoundly in the cross. Number two, the purpose of natural creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why was this stuff created? It was created so that it would reflect back. It isn't God. That's why we know we don't worship trees. We don't worship Mother Earth. It's just reflecting. It's not meant to reflect back that there's something even more beautiful, even more intricate, even, even greater than what you see in creation. The chief end of creation is to glorify God. The purpose of humanity, of human creation, Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by name whom I created for my glory. So God created all people for his glory. The purpose of every human action, no matter how small. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all what? For the glory of God. See, we're, we're, we're not just taking just creation as a whole. We're saying, hey, you know, next time you have a piece of pizza. Next time you have a Diet Coke. I mean, whatever you're doing doesn't really matter. The smallest little things, whatever that is, it's all supposed to be for the glory of God. The incarnation. Romans 15. See, we're, we're moving down this timeline. Romans 15, 8. Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, the Old Testament people, and so the Gentiles, that's you and I, May glorify God for his mercy. Let me read that again. Romans 15. Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. He said something was going to happen. He told this group of people, the, the Israelites, the Jewish nation. There, he said something's going to come true. And so Christ appears to fulfill all the things that he said came true. And also so that the Gentiles, that's you and I, could give glory to God for his mercy. The Old Testament uh, Jewish people could see God's mercy coming. God's mercy's coming in, in that a lamb was slain on the Passover so that they weren't slain. So they could see it, but I'm a Gentile. I'm on the other side. I'm not seeing any of those shadows, but now I see Christ and I'm saying, Oh God, thank you for your mercy. And I'm giving glory to God because of that. So Christ came for glory. God's timing, number six. God's timing, particularly in painful circumstances, is for the glory of God. Now, this is so big. So much could be said. It spins off in a whole sermon series, but I'm just going to have to let it sit. You can wrestle with it. Maybe it washes something new in. Maybe it washes something old out. God's timing particularly in difficult circumstances, is for the glory of God. John 11, 
1 through 6, the story of Lazarus. It says this, Now a certain man was ill. This happens to be a friend of Jesus, Lazarus of Bethany. And when Jesus heard that his friend was sick, he said to those that are around him, his disciples, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God, that's me, may be glorified through it. So we've got this sickness that is going to lead to a temporary death for Lazarus and pain for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. It's meant for glory, my glory and God's glory. Now, Jesus, listen to this. Now, Jesus, he loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and his friend, Lazarus. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He heard that he was sick, and therefore he waited two days. How many people, even Christians, would murmur at Jesus for letting Lazarus die and for allowing Mary and Martha to go through that pain? And especially murmur when they find out he did it for his glory. How many would you define how many of you would define that as loving? Oh, I love you so much. I know you're at the brink of death. I'm just gonna wait here for two days. I mean, if that's how God is loving and that's how he defines loving, then I just don't want to have any part with God. I reached that statement when I watched my mother die of cancer. That's the place that I reached. If God, if this is loving, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. See, this is huge. What this kind of thinking exposes is how... Easy it is to value pain-free lives above the glory and sovereignty of God. The most important thing can easily move into the center is, I've got to have a pain-free life. Or I've got to have my spouse or my wife or my son. And when that's not happening, I can't glorify you, God. I can't have a greater purpose. That's a tough Tough one, number seven. The death of God's son was for the glory of God. If you think Lazarus was difficult, turn a chapter and you get to the death of Christ. John chapter 12, it's the last week. And Jesus says to his friends, now my heart is troubled. What should I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? I mean, I don't know exactly the the context, but I'm, I'm having this sense that Satan is... Now working back on Christ, there's, he's, the shadow of the cross is moving towards Christ. It's getting ever so close. And he's wrestling as you do in your mind saying, Oh God, I mean, what I really want to say is save me from this hour. And he's asking that sort of rhetorical question to his mind. Am I supposed to say that? And then what does Jesus say? No! No, I will not say that. And In fact, I'm going to say... It's this reason I came. Father, you glorify your name, even if it means I have to go through this. That's my main objective is that you would get glory. That's my chief end. 
This isn't my chief end. This is a passage I'm taking. And I'll take that passage if it brings glory. And oh, how it did to God. Last one. Number eight, the purpose of Jesus' return. Second Thessalonians 1.10. On the day Jesus returns, he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. When Jesus comes back, what everyone's going to do is marvel. He's going to be like the bride who walks in and everyone's going to stand up and everyone's going to just marvel. This is the most beautiful being that I've ever been in the presence of. And that's what's going to happen when Christ returns. It's going to be the final completion of the glory cycle. The glory really walks into this planet and then we are then able to reflect that glory in a perfect way. Well, like I said, I could list a hundred more verses. But I think that gives you a flavor of the preeminence of the glory of God through the Bible. Let me mention one more important aspect as I try to move towards the end here and towards the communion table. What's the main problem in the world? I mean, what's at the very core so that, that, yeah, there are problems, but if you take the problem and you go backwards, what's, what's right at the center? What's at the, the bullseye? And Paul answers that for us in Romans one twenty one. For although we knew God, we did not, what? We didn't glorify him. Instead, our thinking became worthless. Our hearts went dark. And we did the unthinkable. We exchanged the glory of God for images to look like me. Because I want everybody to see me. That's so important. I know the glory of God, but what I really want is I want to be glorified. I would like everybody to look at me like they look at God. And an exchange happened. We go back to the marriage illustration. The bride walks in, everybody's standing, admiring. The groom reflecting, his face reflecting. And you're in the audience. And you start looking around saying, I wish everybody was looking at me that way. Excuse me, pardon me, excuse excuse me. And you go out into the center of the aisle. And you just stand in front of the bride and walk down. Would that be okay? I mean, my guess is chaos would immediately break out, would it not? I mean, the father, he's got his right hook on you. The groom, he's running towards you. All kinds of chaos would happen in the room because the wrong person is in the space of glory. It never would be seen as a small thing. You never, you know, in 20 years say, oh, that was awesome. You, you never say that. It would never be like, oh, well, you just forget about it. It's not a big deal. See, but the Bible says that's what you and I have done. God Almighty 
has walked in. And we've decided what I want is I want all the glory that's going to him to go to me. And then when chaos breaks out, we get frustrated at the person we're standing in front of. It would never be something that you would think that God could say, you know, it's no big deal. I'll just forgive that and we'll just move on. It's not never like that. The theological term for that is called sin. And that's the main problem at the center of our world. Paul Tripp calls it a glory war. Every day, every human heart is in a war for glory. Because we were all made to worship. Every human was made to worship. The question is, what is it you're going to worship? Is it going to be God or is it going to be something else? It's a glory war all the time. Two ways to test the intensity or reality of the glory war in your own life. Number one, C.S. Lewis, the great apologist from England before he became a Christian, wrote this as he read through the Psalms. He said, one of, my, one of the greatest obstacles in becoming to believe in God, the God of the Bible, was when I read the Psalms and the constant demand from God to praise God. God keeps saying, you should praise me. And Lewis writes, I, I pictured a, a God craving our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments. Why would God want praise or need praise? It just seems like it's like a vain woman trying to fish for compliments. And so if when you hear how God-centered God is and it rubs you the wrong way, if you think, I don't think God should be so God-centered, then you're in a glory war. Secondly, Piper says this very poignantly. He asked this question to the Christians in his congregation. Do you feel most loved by God because he makes much of you? Or do you feel most loved by God because he has freed you at the cost of his son's life to enjoy making much of him forever? Do you feel most loved by God because he's made much of you? Or do you feel most loved by God because he has freed you at the cost of his own son for you to make much of him? If you're God-centered as a Christian because you think God is man-centered, then you're man-centered. And you're engaged in a glory war. See, this is, you've got to let this wash through and knock out some things that maybe you've always thought. Where does the glory war begin to come to an end? At the cross. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's, see, that's what we were meant to do and we, we're not doing it. We, we all decided we want to step out on the aisle and we want all the adulation that's going to the bride. We want it to come to us. Everyone's decided that. And God can't just forget about it. And he doesn't, thankfully. But God, because he is justified by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, we now can have salvation. A monstrous exchange happened in Romans 1, but a greater exchange happened in Romans 3. And Jesus says, no, we can't forget about it, but I'll replace this monstrous evil called sin. I'll take it, and you can take all of my goodness on you. So that when God sees you coming down the aisle as a church, he just sees a beautiful bride coming down, and he says, yes. And you just reflect back, yes, to God. That's the cycle of glory. When we come to the communion table, Jesus understood that we would easily fall away from understanding this. And so when he comes at the table and he says, this is my blood or this is my body, do this what? In remembrance of me. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, this is right at the center of our faith. And when we get to the center of our faith, we find in our, the center of ourselves a sin. There is a glory war in every heart here. And I pray that we're not God-centered just because we think you're centered on us. Then we're not at all centered on you. We're still centered on ourselves. And we're just using Christianity for our own benefits. Lord, for every sheep struggling to stay with the shepherd, may they come to this table. Remember again that it's really about you, not about them. For for the person that's here and has yet to really trust Christ, would they just sit and would you work on their souls and ask them what's in the middle of their glory war and help them identify what that is and how incomplete it is. In a way that's impossible for me to calculate, would you administer grace and mercy? through these common elements to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.